to the Jesus the Game Changer podcast from Olive Tree Media, hosted by Carl Fays. In today's podcast, Carl's guest is the international speaker and founder of A21, Christine Kane. Christine shares her testimony as well as her passion for A21 and its mission to bring an end to modern day slavery. So Chris, if I was to ask you what A21 was, how would you explain A21? I think the simplest way is to say that we're all about um, abolishing slavery in the 21st century. That's A and 21. Okay. Yeah. That's odd because most people would think, surely there's no slavery. Yeah, I can tell you 100% of the time that's what people say to me. And I thought that probably eight years ago, I thought the same thing. But here's the truth, Carl, that uh, there are more slaves on the earth today than ever before in the history of humanity, which is incomprehensible. It truly yeah. is. Where are these slaves? And what, which is another way of asking where does A21 work? Yeah. We have uh, 12, we're in 12 countries. Um, so there's not a continent on the earth where there are not slaves and um, whether there are people that are in slavery through forced labor or sex slavery, it's um, horrific, but it is everywhere. It's in everybody's backyard. It really wow. is. How did you find out about eight years ago? Like what was the genesis for this? Yeah, year? it's a crazy story. I was going to Greece, you know, I'm Greek and um, I was going to speak at a women's conference and I got off at Thessaloniki airport still feeling a bit surreal that um, you know Paul wrote Thessalonians and I'm like here and as I was standing there I saw all of these posters of these young women and children like dozens and dozens because I can read Greek it said I'm um, missing missing and you know I mean I travel all the time I had never ever seen that many posters of people that are missing so I go out talk to um, the pastor's wife that came to pick me up and I said, what, what is all of that? Why are there so many, is there a big problem in this country? Like it just really shocked me. And um, anyway, with all of that, I went on and she explained some things to me, called my friend from UNICEF and she said to me, Chris, these are the alleged victims of human trafficking. I don't know that I had actually ever heard that phrase before mm. that. Um, and I went, what? Like it just, and she goes, yes, it's the number one, the fastest growing crime worldwide. Um, and because she was from UNICEF, I believed her, you know, she goes, they're faster than the trafficking of armaments and drugs is the trafficking of people. And I just like was gobsmacked. I'm thinking here I am in Greece. I've come to this country so many times to go to Santorini, you know, have a vacation. <laughs> and, um, I, you know, my parents are from there and here I am here finding out that human beings are being trafficked and sold into sex slavery or, um, you know, forced to work 19 hours a day for little to no money um, or just their body organs are being harvested. I mean, or, you know, women being forced to have children and then those children sold into pedophile rings. I mean, it just got worse and worse as I um, started to find out. That started a quest, really, then I think I pretty much read everything there was to read and was absolutely gobsmacked that this was happening in our lifetime. I'm going to pursue how you, why you made that decision to get yeah. involved. but. Uh, is there a typical kind of sex slavery um, case? Is there a sort of a typical way that a well, young woman is sold like that? I think it depends what region of the world you're in. You know, when we work a lot of in Kiev, in Europe, in lots of countries in Europe, so what has often happened there, and every case is distinct, but um, is that girls are promised a job. Um, you know, there's so much uh, economic deprivation in those, those countries. So often traffickers will go. It's called organised crime because it's extremely organised. So they'll go into villages, they'll, uh, you know, 
tell young women that, you know, we've got a great job opportunity, you can be a waitress or you can be a hairdresser or a nurse and basically anything you want to be. And so the girls will get working visas and this then becomes quite complex to try to persecute, uh, persecute to <laughs> prosecute a case um, when someone's gotten a visa of their own volition to come into a country. And they'll get working visas and then when they arrive um, at the destination country, the traffickers there, which they don't know that it's a trafficker, they think it's a job agent, you know, someone that's a mediator, they'll take their passport and their papers. So now you're in a country, you don't know the language, uh, you have, um, you know, you're totally entrusting the person that's there. And before you know it, time and time again, they're taken, literally like you would imagine in a movie, um, put in a apartment, raped 10, 15 times a day. Um, they've got no way of getting out. And if there's no legislation in these countries that um, protect the rights of victims, even if they went to law enforcement, um, they would be criminals because they're illegal immigrants in a nation rather than a victim of a crime. And so we have to work with changing laws to make the girls not victims, uh, victims, sorry, and not criminals. But then they're raped and raped and all of their defences are taken down. They have no money and then they are just literally forced to work into brothels. And we see this time and time and time again. I've had stories where girls have been shipped over in shipping containers. Um, one particular story, the container was opened in Istanbul. There was uh, 60 girls that were put on that container in Nigeria came across when the container was opened in Istanbul 30 of those girls had died they'd suffocated because the oxygen filtration system had broken mm. and um, then the people the traffickers in Turkey were dressed in law enforcement uniforms this is how you break the girls down because then they think I can't trust the police they were raped several times a day then they were put on a little boat to go from um, the coast in Turkey to uh, a brothel in Athens. The Greek Coast Guard was coming past um, in those waters. And so in order to not be caught with the girls, they had 30 girls on these rubber boats. They threw them overboard and um, 25 of those girls drowned. And so by the time uh, we were able to intervene and help to rescue um, the girls working with law enforcement in the brothels, there were only five girls left. And so you hear those stories time and time again. And, you know, it depends where you are. In the United States, often um, a lot of the trafficking is underage minors that have had horrific abuse um, in the home. And, you know, a, a guy that really they fall in love with becomes someone that, you know, they become emotionally codependent on him. Um, they're so scared that many times they've not had a father figure, they've not had a male that's loved them. And then in order to keep him, they'll do whatever he says and he begins to sell them into the sex trade. So, I mean, you know, it is so diverse. We're involved in Bangkok. Um, and what happens in Thailand is, a, a, you know, a whole different story, especially with young children, you know, younger than, my, I've got a 10 year old younger than my daughter's age. And so we are very, very involved um, in Southeast Asia. And you'll find it in Australia and South America. And we have an office in Cape Town and in Australia and just the trafficking that happens in um, Africa. It, it all has a distinctive, but it all comes back to the same thing, that you have the most vulnerable, which are women and children mostly. Um, that are just taken against their will and um, forced to do things that are just unspeakable. How do you break somebody out of that? Yeah, there's, there's, you've got to have a very holistic approach and we, we do, you know, we call it the 4P approach, which um, we are very involved in prevention. So a lot of training, a lot of awareness. We go to lots of orphanages. You'll find us in villages in Odessa in the Ukraine. We'll go to where people are taken from and help to educate them. Um, put programs through schools. We are very big. We have a, a whole schools program that is in every continent. It's called Bodies Are Not Commodities. Um, again, to begin, because in some of these countries, like in Greece, um, you know, uh, 
73%, I'm, I'm trying to think of official government statistics, 73% of all Greek men use a prostitute. Prostitution is legal. Mm -hmm. And so it's embedded into the culture. Often for a 13 year old boy, his rite of passage is that his grandmother will take him to a brothel. And so what do you do in a country where a woman is objectified right from birth? And so you've got to get into schools and go, okay, let's start teaching you that bodies are not commodities, that you have inherent value um, and dignity. And you know, obviously I believe that you're created in the image of God. So there's more in you and more for you than that. So prevention and awareness is a huge part of what we do. Prosecution. Um, if you do not systemically stop this, then it's just going to keep happening. And obviously what drives it is poverty. More often than not, um, it's an economic thing. A, a, a woman in Greece or in the Ukraine is worth about $250,000 annually to a trafficker. That's how much from selling her for sex um, that he will get. And there are many, many occasions where once, normally she has a three year lifespan, often they will take her and harvest different body organs as well and sell them on the black market. So it's just, it's like you're talking about cattle, this, you know, rather than a human being. And so that is horrific to me. Um, and then partnership is a huge thing, um, helping to partner with law enforcement. You've got to work at it holistically with hospitals and with schools. Every sector of society has to be involved to be able to put a stop to this because it's embedded so deeply um, into the nation. And so we've got to work together uh, to be able to do that. What, what is it like for one of these women or young girls to be released out of that? Yeah, it's huge because you're talking, you know, it's slavery in every, uh, slavery is so disempowering, it's so dehumanising. And so a lot of times you don't even know how to, how to survive in the real world. Often girls are very frequently re-trafficked. So if they're taken and just repatriated with in, without any help, um, 99% of those cases, they're going to end up back into the cycle um, of trafficking. We work very hard. We have a two-year program. Um, we've got great homes around the world that have, again, a very holistic approach to restoration and recovery. So we look at the whole person, so body, soul, and spirit. Uh, the trauma therapy that has to happen. I mean, you, you couldn't even begin to understand um, often physically what has been done. We've had girls that um, you know, have been run over, they've had their legs uh, blown off and, and just very, very horrific things done to them. Many of them will never, you know, short of a miracle, be able to conceive children. They're just, the, the damage that is done to them is so dehumanising. How do you not become overwhelmed by this? Yeah, you know, it, it's easy. It, if you do not um, really understand the value of each one, and so for me it always comes down to the one. Um, if I look at the enormity of the problem, and statistics vary between 27 million to 35 million people in slavery, um, it is easy to be overwhelmed by the enormity of the problem. You know, I frequently say that numbers are, are numbing, they're dehumanising. and. Um, it becomes very easy to ignore suffering when it's nameless and faceless and you just go, well, it's just 27 million. But for me, if I just keep bringing it back to the one and every time I meet one girl, one child, or we've had many, many men, um, I mean, you would just freak out to think in northern areas of, uh, in Greece and in Bulgaria, men in chains, in barns, and then forced to work 19 hours a day. Um, in, you go, I cannot actually believe that there's forced labor. And then I mean, when we go into Africa and in India, we're working with partner organizations, entire factories of thousands of people um, that are just locked up in slavery just so that I can have a t-shirt or a cup of coffee. You know, you go, and this really? this is today. Absolutely is today. And I think often, our, we drive that because we continue to buy products that are made by slaves. There's no other nice way to say it. And so, so I can get a $2 cheaper t-shirt. Somebody 
is being kept in slavery day in and day out. And um, I've seen it for myself. You know, I remember being in Egypt and uh, we went to see the pyramids and then we would come into factories where they would sell the rugs. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure someone's watching this right now thinking, yes, I went into one of those factories. And you, you don't even realize the six-year-old little boy that you're seeing and the hundreds of them that are weaving those rugs for 18, 19 hours a day are literally kept in slavery and they're underneath in um, little boxes that they sleep in. It's just, it's just horrific. And so I think we have a moral responsibility to say, you know what, I might just pay an extra dollar for my coffee. And so somebody can be empowered to, to fulfill their potential and not be locked in slavery for that. Everybody watching this, I would think, is, is moved by what you're saying, and it is horrific. That's a difference. There's, there's a difference for you eight years ago to get involved. Yeah. So why the difference to be say, wow, this is terrible, to say I must do something? What was that? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things then. I had just had my second child. I was 40 years old. Um, you know, I kind of think if you're going to pop out a kid at 40 and you're in Greece, you're thinking I'm going to have a vacation on Santorini. I was not thinking that I'm going to start a global anti-trafficking organisation. I'll tell you that much. But I think I was probably hyper-hormonal and very sensitive when I saw the pictures of children. And when you've just had your own child, you're like, so all of a sudden, it's not just an image. This could be your child. I think that had a lot to do with it, my maternal heart. I was right in the midst of, I just gave birth, you know. And so, and then my own story would be woven into that fabric as well. Here I was in Greece and, um, you know, a lot of obviously uh, organized crime rings run that. And you've got in Moldova, Moldova has lost um, 250,000 young women and children. Um, you know, something like 80% of people, of ch women, of childbearing age because nobody knew this was happening. They just lost them to trafficking. They've just disappeared off the books. We don't know where they are. Um, and there are many countries where that's just happened. Um, orphanages have been emptied out by traffickers going, that's my niece, that's my nephew, that's my child. And where there's a void, if we're not stepping in to help rescue them, somebody will. Well, in my own case, you know, I was born um, in Australia. Now this part, I didn't find out till I was 33, but I was aware of it when I started A21, um, you know, in Australia between 1958 and 1968, um, we had a, a, a time where many, many women who were single and pregnant and were, had gotten pregnant out of wedlock were forced to give their babies up for adoption. Well, I went on when I was 33, I found out that I was one of those children and that my um, biological mother was a 23-year-old single woman. Um, when you're Greek and Greek in Australia way back then, dear Lord, you know, to be not married and pregnant would have been the greatest shame that could have existed. And so um, she had me at Crown Street Women's Hospital and I was left there. Now on my birth certificate, there is no name. It's in the category that says child's name. Next to it is literally typed in the word unnamed number 2508 of 1966. So here I was left in a hospital in Sydney, Australia, a number, not a name. So to me instantly when you think 27 million, it's, it's not just a number because I could be 2508, one of those uh, 27 millions. Now just imagine, Carl, if I wasn't born in Australia. So Australia had a rule of law. And so, it, you know, I was adopted through a system that existed so that I was registered. At least my number was registered. People knew I existed. And then there was a protocol that I went through so that I was adopted and I had access to obviously food, water, education, safety, shelter. Now, I could have been that very same child, a Greek girl to a single Greek mother, but left in a hospital in Greece or Albania or Romania um, or Yugoslavia. I mean, pick, pick the country, you know, in that region of the world and nobody would have known. 
that I existed. And so a trafficker could have taken me. I could, I mean, you're one degree separated. So we just think it's happening over there somewhere else and it really doesn't concern me. I'm thinking this couldn't be more personal if I tried because some of the girls that I rescue from Bulgaria, from Albania, from Greece, I think that could have been me. If I was, I just happened to be lucky enough to be born in the right country that had a rule of law. Now many of these countries uh, don't and there's just so much injustice in there that if we don't step in, who will? I always say this, wherever there's a void, someone's going to step in. Either, you know, um, the mafia is going to step in, the drug traffickers are going to step in, somebody's going to step into that void. And I think we have a, a moral and an ethical responsibility. You know, if we truly believe that the only thing in all of the world that is created in the image of God are people, then why would we not be the first people going in to rescue people? And I think not only did Jesus rescue me, but then what could have been a great uh, damage in my own life? You know, here's a kid left abandoned in a hospital, um, unnamed and unwanted and then adopted. And then in my own life, I experienced, um, you know, 12 years of, of sexual abuse and brokenness. So I understand the damage that is done um, through all of that. And it would be just like God to take the things that should have disqualified me from having any kind of future, any kind of hope. A lot of young women with my background, you know, kind of end up really broken, drug dependent or alcohol dependent, maybe two or three different kids to two or three different fathers or confused about their gender identity or very suicidal or broken. That's what normally happens, I think, when, you know, you've been so damaged through abuse, um, abandonment, rejection. That's kind of what happens. Everyone's looking for a sense of belonging. And um, the thing, I mean, I love so many things about Jesus, but one of the great things is not only did he come and rescue me, but then he redeemed my entire story of brokenness and said, now, Christine, I'm going to use you to turn around and open up those doors for other people that have been broken and bound. And I think that's the great news of the gospel, that God never wastes a hurt. He can redeem it all. And then he can use your past to give somebody else a future. And so I think part of why I'm on the planet um, is to to help raise awareness about this and to say, look, it's not hopeless. If, if God could do it with me, then he can use me to do it with others and he can use normal every day. I mean, really, I'm a kid that was born in, in you know, a suburb of Sydney uh, that was pretty broken down. I had such a broken past. If God could use me, then he could use anybody, I think. Who, who are you? I mean, are there champions for you? I mean, obviously, as you've already said, Jesus is important. Yes. Who are the others that you look to and go, there's my role model, there's my yeah, champion? Yeah, I, th- I mean, there are so many great uh, people, Desmond Tutu, Nelson Mandela, William Wilberforce. Of course, you can't be involved in, <laughs> in trafficking. And um, I mean, he, uh, you know, he was so ahead of his time, really. And a lot of what we're doing is continuing that work today. You know, we thought it finished with Wilberforce. Well, and after the Emancipation Proclamation Act, and we're like, uh, it didn't finish then, it's still existing today. Um, I particularly love Hannah more, you know, I'm always looking for chicks that have made a difference. And so, um, and again, she was ahead of her time as well. And I think God has always used uh, women and men. He he uses whoever's willing. I think that's what I find. If he can take an unnamed, unwanted, abused, adopted chick from Sydney, Australia, and say, you know what, I can use you. He can use anybody. And I think he's always, and even the people that we've mentioned in their time, I mean, we look back now and go, these people are are heroes. And, you know, they went to prison for what they believed in, or they um, fought society and culture. They were so far ahead of their time. They they certainly weren't applauded in the way we're applauding them today. We write books about them today. We hail them as heroes. Martin Luther King Jr., of course, you know, I mean, how could you not? But in their day, 
people just didn't particularly like them because they really messed with the status quo. And I think that's what happens. I think some places I go to, they would rather I don't talk about it because you're, you know, when you're putting a trafficker in jail, you're messing with an economic system. And so that's worth $250,000 a year to somebody. And so they don't want you to be messing with that. And so um, I think it's very important that we continue to proclaim messages of freedom and liberty and hope because every human being deserves that. enjoying this podcast. Olive Tree Media seeks to introduce people to Jesus, communicate a Christian worldview and transform beliefs, attitudes and lives through media. Now let's get back to the interview. Do you get the kind of threats or pressure on you and the organisation to stop what you're doing? Well, certainly there are, um, you know, there, there would be segments that are, are not thrilled with what we do in um, in that sense. I think if we, if we weren't if we were just kind of helping people, people would be happy. But I think when it involves putting traffickers in jail and prosecuting cases, then the stakes all change, obviously. And there are stakeholders in that that would prefer you not to be doing what you're doing. So we've had several cases, even in our office in um, uh, Greece, you know, once there was a very sort of uh, a very famous case and, and we, the trafficker got a 100,000 euro fine, 22 years in jail. and then. Um, the next day, four people with guns came into our office and threatened our staff um, and said, you know, stop doing this or we'll kill you, basically. And, um, and I think that's just part of what you have to be prepared for when you take this on. What, what are the characteristics of, say, Wilberforce and Hannah Moore that you look to, that you find inspirational? I think the, their resilience and their absolute tenacity, because that's actually what it takes with both of them. Um, you know, many of the people that were close to them kind of abandoned them when, the, when it got really, when it, the stakes really were high, when um, the heat was really turned up. And I think like, you know, in, in both of their cases too, their families thought they were, you know, like, you're, you're crazy. Their peers, I think Wilberforce in particular, like everybody in parliament was like, what are you doing? You're throwing away a great career. You're, um, you know, this is not the hill to die on. And I think with both of them, it was like, yes, this is a hill that's worth dying on. And because of their legacy and because of their work, we're continuing that today, which I think people love to talk romantically about them without the realization that we need to be doing this still today. There's something sort of almost romantic about talking about something a couple of hundred years ago, uh, rather than taking the responsibility to say, you know what, what am I doing today in my own life that probably needs to change if we are going to move the needle on this issue? And what does need to change? I think we have to become aware of that the fact, number one, that it's happening. Um, the fact number two, that to a degree, all of us have a responsibility to do something. We can't do everything, but we can each do something. And I think at A21, we are very committed. You know, even on our website, we have 21 things you can do today from, from you know, writing to uh, your local councillor to just stuff, not everything that costs money, either, just things that you can begin to do pragmatically today to educate yourself, to inform yourself, to perhaps uh, raise your voice because your voice does matter. And I think once you realize that every voice does matter and when you start saying that a movement um, has arisen, it's because a whole lot of people with individual voices decided that my voice does count. And so rather than just complaining, ignoring, medicating or just denying, it's like saying, okay, I may just be one voice, but I am one. And I think we hear a lot of that rhetoric and I'm just crazy enough to believe it. It just works. That's, I, don't know, I really am. As a follower of Jesus uh, and the church now is often seen as people that don't give women a fair go. How do you view what the church, what Jesus said about women and, and how that might've shifted 
the culture there. Sure. I, I mean, he was radical. I, 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 no other man has empowered me as much as Jesus Christ. You know, I think my own experience um, and the church culture I'm from is I, found, I, I have found Jesus and his church profoundly empowering of women and um, dignifying them. Like I, I told you, you know, I grew up in a culture and a system uh, that denigrated women very much. So I, I grew up uh, before my big fat Greek wedding when it was not cool to be Greek in Australia. And so, you know, the, the whole world I grew up in was a woman was, you know, to be silent. Your highest call is to be married, to have children. Um, in fact, I was engaged to a Greek man when I was 18 and I wanted to go to, you know, I went to Sydney University and I, when I had been accepted, my potential future mother-in-law at the time said to me, um, you have to choose between my son and university because you cannot be more educated than my son. And people laugh at me um, that I'm actually old enough that that was a reality. And so when I look at things in biblical times, I think, well, you know, that was my life. In many, many ways, there are so many similarities. Um, although a lot of the girls that would be watching this today in certain parts of the world would be just laughing, going, you've got to be kidding. But in many other parts of the world, this is their reality. A woman still can't drive. A woman can't be educated. A woman um, is betrothed to be married at 13 and 14 years old. I mean, that is the, by va the large majority. It's just in much of the Western world where women have access to education and equal opportunity and affirmative action. That's still not every woman's reality. So I grew up in a great nation, but within a subculture that just uh, a woman should, was not in any way encouraged to aspire to anything. And then, um, you know, I met Jesus and I just suddenly found out I mean, he had a plan for my life, a purpose for my life, that he had put all of this potential on the inside of me. He had filled me with gifts and talents, not so that I could minimize them and deny them and go into hiding, but pretty much from the Garden of Eden, God has been about bringing us out of hiding. Like, you know, the first thing was we kind of blew it and, and we ran and hid and, you know, God came looking for us and we said, no, no, I'm naked, I'm ashamed, I'm afraid. And so I hid. And um, I think ever since then, God's saying, no, 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 I put all this on the inside of you. I sent my son to rescue you. And now I want you to fulfill, uh, to have abundant life, I guess, you know, is the biblical term. Um, I want you to fulfill your purpose. So when I met Jesus and, um, you know, it's been 27 years now, I... Um, I was this broken mess. I was a kid that was riddled with uh, insecurity, with shame, with guilt, with condemnation, the things that you would expect if you'd been abused and abandoned and adopted. I was filled with rejection and just culturally very marginalized. When you grow up second generation migrant Greek in a nation that at that time was not very affirming of uh, um, immigrants, I certainly know, you know how a lot of refugees feel and how a lot of immigrants feel because that kind of shame was put on me uh, all my life growing up. Um, and then I met Jesus who just lifted that shame off me and um, never made me feel less than because I was a woman or second, uh, secondary. And it was amazing to me. So, you know, I, I see in different sectors of the religious world, women are kind of marginalized and oppressed. Um, and yet Jesus was anything but that. I mean, I think even if you look at it biblically, um, you can't get away from it in the gospels. Women traveled with Jesus in Luke 8. Women funded his ministry. Um, Jesus dignified the most women that nobody else would talk to, you know, an adulterous woman, um, a, a woman on her own at the well, a woman hemorrhaging, reached out and touched him and he recognized her. I think whether you were the lowest of the low or obviously the highest of the high, Joanna, who could for fund his ministry um, and everyone in between, Jesus never had a problem, whether you were a successful, well-educated, uh, well-funded woman, or whether you were the most broken, marginalized woman. And then I think uh, throughout the New Testament, we see that time and time again, even within um, the church, women were 
you know, were prophetesses we see in the New Testament. Paul in the book of Romans gives a large list of women that were involved, um, both single women and women that were married together with their husbands involved in ministry. And he included them as um, part of the women that worked alongside him. So I personally uh, see Christianity as the most empowering religion when it comes to women. In fact, you know, I think there's the Galatian scripture. And for me, because it also pertains to slaves, it's, you know, there's no, there is therefore now neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, male or female. Jesus just levels the playing field for all of humanity. I I don't know any other religion that actually does that, that dignifies every person, um, male and female, rich and poor, broken, marginalized, um, and everyone in between like Christianity does. It's beautiful. This series is called Jesus the Game Changer. If I said to you, so how for you is Jesus the Game Changer, what would you say? Well, I think in in two ways. Number one, he changed my whole life. So he himself is the game changer because he literally, uh, you know, I, uh, Carl, this is quite funny because a lot of people don't like the phrase born again. Okay. But I kind of like, I didn't like the way I was born the first time. So I kind of really love, I'm I'm back to reclaiming it because I really love the fact that you get a chance and, and for all perhaps the, the stigma associated with that, the, the truth of that at its core is so powerful. That's why he's a game changer because he took this unnamed, unwanted, abused, adopted chick that should have been a statistic. Um, and he, was the game changer. He just turned my life around radically. And then not only that, but um, he gave me this sense of like, you know what, my life could be a game changer for somebody else's life. And I thought, I've only got one life. And um, you know, last year I was in hospital with thyroid cancer and another growth on my throat. You can see the scar. When I was lying on that hospital bed, I was at UCLA hospital in the States. And I thought life is so short and I'm at the halfway mark, I'm gonna be 50. I want my life to count. You know, it's it's so quick. It's here today, gone tomorrow. And you're just kind of sitting in that moment going, you know what, you can either live as a victim or you can either live safe or you can go, you know what, Jesus came and rescued me and my life can be a game changer for someone else's life. It doesn't mean it has to be spectacular. It doesn't mean it has to be sensational. But I truly believe if you value your life, your life can be a game changer for somebody else's, absolutely. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to support the radio, video and podcast ministry of Olive Tree Media, you can donate online at olivetreemedia.com.au and click on the donate button in the top right corner. We accept both tax deductible and non-tax deductible donations. Thanks for listening. Holy